This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. All right, folks, Mark chapter 2. We're going to wrap up chapter 2 today and move into chapter 3. Watch out. Watch out. We are cooking with gasoline now. What is, that, what is that saying? What is that phrase? I feel like I change it every time. Cook What? Frisco? Crisco? Crisco? Isn't that like what you grease a pan with? I guess you cook with it. Okay. So, um... I think I've been pretty open about this. Um, if we're relatively new to knowing each other, um, perhaps this, you know, I haven't, we haven't talked about this yet, but uh, the last four years, really since we said, okay, yes to planting a church, all hell has broke loose in our lives. Um, we, we didn't know, like we knew of spiritual attack. We knew that there was an enemy that wanted to steal, kill, and destroy, but like we, we, never, we never knew that enemy, like like, hey, here he is. Um, let's destroy your world. Uh, and so the last few years have been, have been tough. Um, <clears throat> and so Stephanie and I were seeing a counselor together. Um, if you are like, counselors, whoa, like, yes, a counselor. Go see a counselor, right? Go see Abby one day when she's done with all of her schooling. Um, you know, we'll, we'll take our cars in for preventative maintenance, but we won't take our minds and souls in to be like poked around and looked at. It's silly. It's just silly. Um, go see someone who can objectively be like, oh, hey, have you thought about this? Or why are you doing that to yourself, right? Like we need people who can see our blind spots um, and that's a good thing. Uh, and so we were, <clears throat> we were seeing, a, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> that's, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. No, I'm, I, I, I have a water over there. I don't want to drink yours. Jenna, will you toss that this way? Just give it a good toss. You got it. Oh, thank you. No, hey, we're, that worked. That worked. Well done, well done Jenna. So we were seeing our counselor, and, um, and she, said, she said, you know, it's not the arguing that, that scares me in a marriage. It's when a marriage stops arguing. So, so when, when we're in there and we're talking and, and you know, you're, you're typically, when you're there together, you're like, yeah, there's some things you're trying to work through. And, and she was like, it's not, it's not that you're, you're fighting or arguing. She's like, what, what scares me more is when a, when a couple has been arguing and fighting and then they stop arguing and fighting. Um, because typically there's been a callousness that has formed over their hearts, right? They're just kind of like, you know what? I'm done. And, and a hardness starts to form that, that there's no longer the drive and the desire to, to fight through it, to work through it. Um, and, and that's not just in relationships, that's in life in many ways, um, is that we're all prone to, to become calloused, to become hard of heart where we're no longer feeling things that maybe we should feel. We're no longer seeing things the way that perhaps we should see them. Um, and... And that is a danger. That is a danger in life, but it's a danger in our relationship with God. And one of the primary ways that we can become callous and numb to the work of the Spirit is religion. It is, is coming here and, and going to church and, and maybe having a Bible that we, we pull out on occasion, like doing just enough spiritual and religious activities that, that tells our minds like, oh no, we're good. And then over time, we just kind of become numb and callous to the actual work and voice of the Spirit of God. So what we have here with the Pharisees, 
in, in Mark chapter 2. We see it time and time again, right, that, that Jesus, the most common conflict for Jesus is the religious. Like the really moral and ethical and upright, the ones who had the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, come on, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, memorized by the time they were a teenager? I got a teenager, right? Shoot, memorize the first five books of the Bible. She, she can't even remember, memorize her chores. She does pretty good. I'm sorry, Michaela. Right, but they, they, they knew their stuff, and yet that's the ones that Jesus is oftentimes clashing with. That's where he finds the most opposition and hostility. And again, that's what's happening here in Mark chapter 2. Let's read, um, let's read here. I'm in Philippians still. I'm like, well, that's not right. Nope, it's not going to be right. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, the Sabbath for Jews was Saturday. Um, today, Sunday, that's oftentimes our Sabbath since Jesus rose on Sunday. The Sabbath shifted at that point from Saturday to Sunday. So one Sabbath, that would be a Saturday, he and his disciples were going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what's going on here, right? Let's, let's try to get some context. You got Jesus and his disciples, and they're, they're walking along through a grain field. His disciples are following him. You've also got the Pharisees who are, are following him because they're there. It wasn't just like, huh, look at us in the same grain field at the same time, right? Like there was some intentionality from the Pharisees to follow Jesus, not because they trusted him, but because they didn't trust him. You've got people in the same context, right, who will trust Jesus, and you've got also people who are skeptical and just want to tear him down. And so you've got the Pharisees, and they're, they're walking along, right? These are the people that if a question of faith arose, if a question about the Sabbath came up, people are going to the Pharisees. They're like, hey, what's going on here? Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. Nicodemus, what do we do with this? How do we interpret this? What do we do with the Sabbath? So the Pharisees were the people that most would go to around questions of the Sabbath. And so you've got, it's the Sabbath day, they're walking along, and Jesus' disciples, whether they're, they're hungry or they just want a snack or whatever, they're, they're picking the tops of the grain off, and they're just, they're just snacking on the grain, making a little trail mix, right? Eating some oats, some dry oats. Like, gosh, <laughs> there can't be something less appetizing than just dry oats. But... That's what they're doing, right? They're just, they're literally just walking by and, and it, it, it's just, they just grab it and they're just snacking on the oats. And the Pharisees are like, you see, there they are breaking the law of the Sabbath. What's with you, Jesus? What's with your followers? The, the real accusation that they're making here is Jesus, you and your followers can't possibly love God because you're breaking his commands, 
You're breaking the law of the Sabbath. It's impossible that you could be the son of God, that you could be following God because you're, you're willingly breaking his commands. That's the accusation that the Pharisees are making for Jesus, towards Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, you're breaking the command of God. So where does this command come from? Exodus 20 is where you first get the command regarding the Sabbath. This is the, the Ten Commandments. And the longest commandment of the Ten Commandments, the one with the most verbiage around it, is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's where we first get the command from God to his people to honor the Sabbath. We see it in Exodus 31, it's repeated. Exodus 31, verse 12 through 13, and the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, right, those words, above all, I'm just telling you, if I'm sitting there and Moses is like, I got a word from God, above all, more than anything, the next words are probably not what I'm expecting to hear. That's just not where I'm thinking he's going with this. Above all, what does he say? You shall keep my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. God commands his people to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a 24-hour day where those who trusted and followed God reflected God's image by resting as he rested. Right, it's rooted in creation where God for six days works and creates the world and on the seventh day he stops and he enjoys the creation that he made. He, He rests, he stops doing and he just, he's being, he's just being present. And God says, hey, if you're, if you're going to follow me and be like me, then you have to keep my Sabbath as well. You've got to stop working. You've got to take a day where you let go of control and you trust that I'm in control. You've got to take a day where you stop doing and you just be. You just be in my presence. You enjoy the creation I've given you. You set your mind and your heart towards me. You worship me. There has to be a day in which that happens. It's holy. Above all, you've got to keep this. One of the primary reasons that God calls us and commands us to keep a Sabbath is because as people, I think our biggest issue deep down is that we're control freaks. We don't want anybody telling us what to do unless we, in our own controlling way, sign off on the fact that they can tell us what to do, right? But we, we want to ultimately call our shots. When do we get the most frustrated at home, right? When, when someone tells us what to do. When do we really get the most frustrated? When someone tells us what to do and we think they're wrong. Oh, shoot. 
Like, that's when it's going down, right? I, I tell Stephanie something, and she's like, no, right? Like, that's where we can get, we can start butting heads. When we think they're wrong and I'm right and they're telling us what to do, you ever had a boss like that? Oh, my word. I had a boss like that my first job out of college. It was rough. It was rough. I was like, why? How did he get this job? You ever had, you was like, how, would, how did that happen? Did they not have a conversation? He's a great man. He's probably moved on. And, um, but, right, we don't like to be told what to do. We don't. We think we know best. We think we can figure it out. That's why as teenagers, we're like, mom and dad don't know anything. They haven't lived 20 years more than me. You know, like, and so, th- so our issue is control. I want to be in control of my own life. And the problem where that really comes in is when we stand before God and he's like, hey, the only way to have a relationship with me is to let go of control to surrender your own way and to trust me and follow me, that's when we start to go like, oh, like you want me to release control to you, God. You want me to let go of calling my own shots. That was the original sin. God said, told Adam and Eve, trust me, follow me. I'll give you everything you need. Don't eat from this tree. Everything else is yours. Trust me and follow me. And they're like, God, we love you but I think I'm going to eat from that tree anyways. I think I know it's best. It looks good to my eyes. It's appealing to me. And so God, he gives us these regular reminders that instruct us to let go and trust that he's going to take care of it. That's what it means to sanctify us, to make us more like him. The Sabbath is a regular reminder that I can stop hustling and grinding and trying to do everything on my own and that actually there is a God who goes ahead of me and will do what I cannot do. God, he, he calls us to tithe, to give back of the 100% that we receive. It's all God's anyways and God's like, hey, give the first fruits back to me. Why? Why does God want you to tithe to your church? Is God's budget running low? No. Like, is he about to overdraw on his bank account? No. Everything is God's. Everything. He doesn't need anything from us. So why does he tell us to tithe? Because that is one of the ways where we hold on loosely to something that oftentimes holds on tightly to us. Where we say, God, I'm going to hold, it's not my money, it's yours. I'm going to hold on loosely to it. But I don't know about you, but I'm oftentimes like, God, I really need to buy this. And if I could just put this over here to this savings, then I could do this. And God's like, hey, like it's now controlling you. And so the Sabbath is another reminder where God's like, hey, hey, you got to let go of control. You got to trust me. Our relationship with God is built on faith, on surrender, on trusting him and not trying to be our own God. And so the Sabbath is given as a way for us to rest and enjoy and see that he's going to take care of it. So back in Mark, were they actually breaking the law? That was the accusation. Hey, Jesus, your disciples are working. They're breaking the law. The Sabbath says, do not work. They are 
working, were they actually breaking the law? Well, if they were farmers and they were reaping their harvest, then yes. But, but the law says do not work. It doesn't nitpick on everything that that means. And so the, the challenge of the command do not work now comes down to the interpretation of the law. And the Pharisees, their heart issue is to be in control of their own lives and their own faith. That's what their religious system does. Is it creates a world of control that they can manage on their own. So they're like, okay, God says do not work. Okay, rather than having faith and trusting in God, I'm going to write down everything I think that can mean, and then if I accomplish that, then God has to bless me. I've accomplished, I've, I've earned my way into his favor. And so they literally just start listing out the laws. One of the laws, you can only take 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. If you take 2,000, you have now begun working and you're breaking the law. And so they're literally walking around on Sabbath counting their steps. That sounds pretty laborious to me. If, right? It's kind of ironic, right? Another law, if you need to sew your, your robe up, you can sew one loop. But if you sew a second loop, you've begun working and you're breaking the Sabbath law. You cannot make a fire or put out a fire. You can write one letter down, but if you write a second letter down, You've begun working. And so literally, they, they've made all of these laws because why? They're trying to be in control of their own life. They're trying to be in control of their own faith. And based on their rules and their control and their arrogance, they look at Jesus' disciples and they go, you just picked yourself a snack. Well, doggone, you're working. Jesus, you can't love God. You can't follow him. They're creating all of these rules rather than having faith because they want to be in control. They're control freaks. They don't want to trust God. They want to write out their own rules and trust in themselves to measure up. You ever find yourself doing that with God? Thinking that you can do enough read enough, go to church enough, do all the right things, and then that's what's going to earn your favor with God, your love with God. The reality is nothing you do today or don't do today will earn or lose your love from God. His love is full and complete because of Jesus. If you've trusted in Christ, then his love is at the maximum amount. I can grieve him. I can hurt his heart, but he loves me completely. And it doesn't matter what I accomplish, it's not like he's more in love with me now. It doesn't matter how much I screw up, it doesn't, his love is the same because his love for me is through Jesus. They're trying to earn it, they're trying to work for it. And, and in the end, they're just creating more burden. What was meant to be a blessing has now become a burden. What was meant to be a gift from God has now become a burden. That's what Jesus goes to in the next thing. He says, Do you, have you not read what David did? When he was in need and he was hungry, he went and ate the bread of the presence. David actually broke the law. The law actually said only the priests should eat the bread of the presence, and David ate it. He actually broke the law, but they're not freaking out about David here. Right? They're not condemning David. 
Why is Jesus saying this? What's his point? He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The bread of the presence was a gift from God to the priests. God can choose what he does with that gift. It was for the priest. If God wants David to survive and live by eating the bread, God can call that shot. But it wasn't meant to be a burden. It wasn't meant to be a weight. The Sabbath is a gift. It's not meant to be a burden and a weight. It's not meant to be all these rules that actually sap our love of God. It's meant to increase our love for God. It's meant to be something where we're rested and rejuvenated, reminded of God's goodness to us. And the Pharisees are just are killing it. They're crushing themselves and everyone else under all of their unnecessary rules. God never said, hey, you can't have a snack. And yet they're adding these rules in. They're adding in more tradition and expectation and it is crushing the people. It's weighing heavy. It's crushing them. So who gets to interpret the Sabbath? Are the Pharisees right or wrong? Who gets to call the shot? Who gets to say what work is or isn't? Ultimately, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The one who created the Sabbath gets to call the shots for the Sabbath. The one who was there when he six and rested seven, rested on the seventh, he's the one that gets to say what work is and what, what isn't work. This is another statement of Jesus, of his divinity. He's stating that he is God. He is God over the Sabbath. And his intention was that the Sabbath would be a gift for man, not that the Sabbath would become man's God. So often, right, we take our religious practices and it becomes our God. I love there's a, a verse in John, I couldn't tell you where right now, where, where Jesus says, you, you hold high the sacred words of God forgetting that these words are meant to point you to God. So, so many people would, would be like, oh my gosh, don't, don't mess with my Bible. This is just paper and ink. It's just a means to the end of knowing God. It's a gift to us to know God himself. This is not God himself. And so many people, they were taking the Sabbath and they were like, the Sabbath is so important. And they're like, you're, you're missing God. Like you're, you're missing the purpose of it. It's a gift. It's a blessing to know God that is the purpose. And so should you and I still be Sabbathing today? Like is that still an expectation? And the Bible says absolutely yes. The Sabbath was, was, was there before Exodus 20. Before God gave the law, the Sabbath was there. If it's rooted in creation, it goes beyond the law. And so from the very beginning, God expected that there would be a day of rest. And then he gives the law and he says, hey, take that day of rest to remember that I am God, you are not. To rest and to remember who I am. And then in Hebrews 4, again, in the New Testament, the Bible upholds the command for the Sabbath. And so for you and I today, God's expectation is that if you are following Christ, that we are to take a Sabbath, a 24-hour day, a 24-hour period where we stop 
working and hustling and grinding and trying to take care of everything on our own, and we let go and we trust that God will take care of it. We trust that He is good and will provide. Where we worship, where we reflect and remember it's Him who is our provider. So what does your Sabbath look like? Application for you, what what does that look like? A 24-hour period where you stop doing your job. Where you, you have a day off. If you're a student, I think you put away studying. I think you, you stop doing all of your chores. You stop doing more and more and more and you, you just be. And you're present and you enjoy God's, God's gift and his creation and what he has blessed you with. The challenge for us to take a Sabbath is that we're going to have to do some prep on the first six days to get ready for that seventh. Right? You got a test on Monday and you want to take a Sunday Sabbath? Probably going to have to study Saturday or Friday or Thursday, Right? It takes that, that prep on the front end so that we can go, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to trust that God will provide and take care of it. I'm going to trust him. You don't want to do chores at home? I mean, this is, this is a challenge for us. Got to do it beforehand. Or we we got to find those things that are not work so that we can rest and be in the presence of God. We can trust that he's good. He's got it. He's in control. Summary here. We see the same group of people missing Jesus. The religious, they're they're missing Jesus. They're on the outside looking in. They've known church their entire life. They can't remember a day where they haven't believed in God. They would say, yes, I have faith in God, and yet they're missing Jesus. They're missing him. Because they want to be in control and not surrender to him, not trust him. What we'll see next in the next few verses in chapter 3 is that when we refuse to trust and surrender to God, when we repeatedly refuse to submit to him, we are progressively hardening our hearts so that we are further distancing ourselves from the presence of God and harming those around us. So in Mark 3, it says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. It's the Sabbath again. And you've got a man in worship with a withered hand, a deformed 
hand, a disability. His arm, his hand doesn't work properly. He probably struggles through life. He struggles with the job. He struggles with, with basic tasks that most people can, can accomplish. And they're in worship. And the Pharisees are so hardened that they're not looking at this man with compassion. They're not having empathy for the fact that he's struggling and suffering. They just see this as an opportunity to possibly trap Jesus. They're, they're, they're using this man. They're stepping on him in order to elevate themselves. And Jesus, he brings this man forward and he says, are you kidding me? Is it, is it lawful to, to do good or to do harm? What's the law? Right? Is, it, is it lawful to save or to kill life? Like what, what's your law? And they're, they're silent. Because if they say, no, 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 do good, then they have to give up their control. They have to say, Jesus, you're right. The right answer is right in front of them. It's right there. Truth is right in front of them. The obvious choice is so clear, and yet they choose the wrong choice. They choose to let a man suffer and they justify in their minds that they're doing the right thing. And Jesus is angry and grieved. His heart breaks because these religious leaders who if anybody should get it right, it's these people. They know the Bible. They know the heart of God apparently. If anybody should get it right, it's them and they're the ones in their own self-righteousness justifying their evil to hurt this man. To let him suffer because it might break their tradition of how they interpret the law. And Jesus is angry and broken over the hardness of their heart. Their heart is so hard, they, they no longer feel empathy for someone who's suffering. What's right is right in front of them and somehow their, their hearts are so hard that they justify doing the wrong thing. You ever felt that time? This would be hitting close to home right now for some of you, where you know in your heart what the right thing is to do, and somehow you talk your way into doing the wrong thing. I mean, it's not, a, it's not, it's not really a, a question. You, we know. And yet somehow we, we manage to wiggle our way around it. That's what a hard heart does, is it, it calluses our heart. We don't feel what we should feel for people. We, we judge people rather than empathize for them. We see ourselves as better rather than realizing we're no different. It makes it difficult to feel. It makes it difficult for people to get through to us because our hearts harden. Imagine that I had a sheet of ice right here. If you, if you wanted to get to me, do you think that, you know, it's a thin sheet, you think you could get through the ice to me? I, I would bet most of, yeah, you know, thin sheet of ice, okay. But if I added a second one, and a third one, and a fourth one, and a fifth one, and a sixth one, and a seventh one, it, it's going to become darn near impossible to break through to me. 
And from my perspective, it's going to become darn near impossible for me to feel or see what I should see. You put enough layers in front of me, even something that's transparent becomes cloudy, becomes a little bit blurry. Those lines that were crisp and clean are now a little bit blurry. This is what's happening with them. Their hearts have become hardened. And the obvious right choice is right there. Are you going to save life or kill? Are you going to do good? Are you going to do harm? And they, in their self-righteous, twisted justification, say, harm. It's happened a lot in churches. We've heard a lot of people in churches because we're arrogant about our interpretation. We take something that's an open-handed discussion, we close our fists around it, and all we end up doing is beating people down. I've done it, and I'm sorry. And you think back growing up to the people I judged and looked down on because I was a good kid and didn't make the same mistakes. So arrogant. So, so arrogant. I'm sure we've had similar thoughts, right? Not like them. I wouldn't do that. Not a chance. We start to harden our hearts. Repeated disobedience without repentance every time adds another layer and hardens our heart and hardens our heart, hardens our heart, hardens our heart. That first time, right, it was tough. We had this guilty conscience. It was a battle. Second time, a little bit easier. Third time, a little bit easier. Fourth time, not even thinking about it, really. Fifth time, sixth time, it just becomes a pattern of life. Look, the devil's not going to come up in front of you and be like, I'm here to kill your life. Do this and it will destroy you. Make this choice and your future will crumble. That's not how the devil works. It's a subtle, sly, simple step where we know in our heart what's right and wrong, but we justify it and then we don't repent and it hardens our heart. And then we take that step again and it hardens our heart. And we take that step again and it hardens our heart. How many times have you heard God, you know what he's telling you and you just don't do it? You know he's inviting you to confess. I can't do that. I can't put it out there. You know he's put that person in your life and you're supposed to invite them over. You're supposed to share life with them and share Jesus with them. You're like, "Ah, it'll be awkward. What if they reject it? When we hear God's word and we ignore it, we harden our heart. So is there hope? As we finish today, as we wrap up today, is there, is, there, is there hope for a hardened heart? Is there hope 
Jesus, he tells the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretches it out and his hand was restored. There is restoration in the power of Jesus. The darkness has come in, but the light of Jesus shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome the light. We turn off all the lights here, darkness wins, but if you flip on a flashlight, what are you gonna see? The light, because the darkness cannot overcome the light. So yeah, I can have six, seven, eight, 14, 27 layers thick of a callous heart, but the power of Jesus can break through. And he invites you, stretch out your hand. Reach out to him, he's already there, and receive his healing, and receive his restoration. It's a free invitation for you and me. It's a free gift of God's grace and love. But hear this, it is not free. It's free for you and me, but it came at a cost for Jesus. See, the grace of Jesus healed this man, and the Pharisees and the Herodians went out and began to plot how they would kill Jesus. Because the, the price for the grace for us is the cost of Jesus' life. It's a free gift for us, but it is not free. It is not cheap. And Jesus, he went to the cross for our sins. But praise God, he rose from the dead, and when he rose from the dead, he shone into the darkness, and the darkness will never again be able to overcome. And so there is hope for us today. No matter where you are or how hard your heart is, the invitation that Jesus is saying to you and to me right now is to reach out and to receive him. He's already done it. To receive his hope and his restoration and his light, to repent of our sins and find forgiveness and a restoration of our souls. There is hope in Jesus. Don't harden your heart today. Don't harden your heart to what he's telling you. Receive his gift, his grace. Let's pray. Psalm 139, David, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Do you invite God to search your heart? Ask him if there's any hardness in your heart towards anyone, towards anything he's told you, towards a secret sin that you want to keep secret. Ask him to shine the light of his grace into your heart to search you.
Acts 3, it says, repent therefore and turn back. That's what the word repent means. It means to, to turn from the way you're heading, the way you're facing. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. To repent is to let go of control. It's to stop trusting in yourself and it's to trust that when you turn to God, no matter what that means, that it's good. That that's where times of refreshing come. That's where, where healing is found. And listen, I know, I know for some of us, the devil is trying to have this conversation with you that nope, it's not possible. There's no way that if you turn away from your sins, if you confess your sins, if you return to God, there's no way that that's going to go well for you. Look, I can't tell you what human consequences would be, but I can tell you that the grace of God, the, the restoration in his presence is, is worth it and will be worth it. So I think everybody's in one of two places right now, and I think God's speaking to us, and we don't want to just move on to sing a song. We want to listen for God. And my, I feel like the Spirit is, is saying one of two things. One is surrender. That if there's any way you, you know right now in your heart, like, I don't, I don't really, you know. And God's saying, just surrender it. Lay it down, trust me. And so if you, if you know that's God speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Don't stubbornly dig your heels in. And for others, this is a warning. It's just a warning that in those times will come. This afternoon, tomorrow morning, Tuesday, right when, when we know what's in front of us and there's this pull to want to choose our own, our own ways to be in control and, and God's telling you now, trust him. Don't harden your heart. Trust him. Choose this day whom you will serve. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.